Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and you listen to Authentic Biochemistry Podcast on today, the 22nd of February, 2023. This is Ash Wednesday, and so the beginning of Lent. I'm going to be giving you lecture number 32 in immunoepigenetics. And before we get into something that's new, I want to recap where we're at because I introduced a great deal of highly detailed information in the last two lectures. And I thought this would be a good time to summarize and also do a little bit of synthesis. So here we go. The inhibition of RNA polymerase 2 phosphorylation blocked histone acetylation, thus blocking anti-apoptosis, the same time promoting tumor cell apoptosis. Glioblastomas, of course, harbor a super enhancer at the MCL1 locus. Remember, that is an anti-apoptotic mitochondrial membrane protein. So, that translates to an increase in MCL1 levels. That's super enhancer as compared to normal brain tissue. And this is, again, what you see in glioblastomas. Now, while suppression of that MCL1 alone did not yield significant apoptotic induction, combined inhibition of a BCL-XL, BCL-2, plus the MCL-1 led to strong cell killing and indeed a reduction of tumor growth in patient-derived xenograft models in vivo. Now, the kinase inhibitor called THZ1 will affect the phosphorylation of that RNA polymerase 2. And through that mechanism will affect transcription and the modulation of those cis regulatory elements. So that means THC, uh, THC1 potently suppressed the presence that is enrichment of a histone 3 lysine 27 acetylated form is specifically at the super enhancer site. Now that's in keeping with the hypothesis that THZ1 essentially decommissioned super enhancers broadly in those glioblastoma cells. So preventing the phosphorylation of RNA polymerase 2 tanks histone acetylation near the MCL enhancer region thus epigenetically inhibiting transcription of that particular anti-apoptotic gene. MCL1 and BCL-XL are essential for cell survival during normal developmental neurogenesis. BCL-X is in general are anti-apoptotic and their role can partially compensate for the MCL1 in differentiating neuronal um, 
precursor cells. So now you get an idea why you have MCL1 and BCLXL proteins. Now what about BAX? BAX is a common pro-apoptotic target for both MCL1 and BCLXL. So overall, what that study suggests, and even maybe demonstrates, because it was well done, that MCL1 and BCLXL are the critical mm -hmm. anti-apoptotic BCL2 members required for nervous system development in mammals. As a fast turnover protein, which is what MCL1 is, its levels are tightly regulated, remember, by the 26S proteasome. And ALG2 as well was critical for MCL1 stability. Now that's all a process that's mediated by a direct interaction with AGL2 another protein called RIPIN3, which are, the RIPIN3 is a component of the 26S proteasome, okay? So, as a critical calcium sensor, ALG2 regulates the activity of the 26S proteasome upon increases due to cytosolic calcium levels. That follows T-cell activation. That consequently influences the stability of MCL1 and accelerates T-cell death process. Why is that essential? Because it leads to T-cell contraction and what? A restoration of the immune homeostasis. After the earlier mobilization of a T-cell repertoire and lymphocytic control and then inflammatory mediated responses for that particular immune status that had to be reached. Now, all this occurs because MCL1 is removed and remember, it normally would stop apoptosis. So you see where this protein is really critical for controlling cell fate. Right? Okay, now that's part of it. Now, so T cells basically are destined for apoptosis after activation. And this echoes the previous study about the function of ALG2 in T cell death. Pre-activated natural killer cells, recall, induced a loss of mitochondrial outer membrane potential. Okay, now that was that was determined by doing staining for um, CMX-ROS. And that rapidly triggered cytochrome C release in mitochondria. And of course, that's the first step for mitochondrial canonical apoptosis. So natural killer treatment also quickly activated caspase-3 and what that does is triggered a phosphatidylserine externalization, causes the PS to be flipped on that membrane, okay? From the inner leaflet to the outer leaflet. So NK treatment induced cleavage 
of the BID protein. Also, caspase 9, 8, and 3, and the PARP1 hierarchically. And what does that do? That leads to target cells blebbing and the formation in those cells of apoptotic bodies. Of course, that's all typical morphology for classical apoptosis. Therefore, primary natural killer cells induced mitochondrial apoptosis. Natural killer treatment also readily induces cytochrome C release in all the tested blood and solid cancer cell lines uh, in the literature. That suggests an induction, of course, of mitochondrial apoptosis, and that's the general mechanism for the way that natural killer cells mediate their killing. So NK cells induced cancer cell mitochondrial apoptosis very quickly. So it's detectable after just a few hours using standard methods uh, in uh, cell culture. Consistent with an apoptotic form of cell death. Remember the caspase 3 inhibitor, DEVID-FMK, or the pan-caspase inhibitor, ZVAD-FMK, will significantly reduce natural killer cell response. Okay, so that's how you're able to focus on that particular parameter. So Th1 cells now, different lymphocyte, Th1 cultured cells with the TCA inhibitor, sodium fluoroacetate. When you titrate with sodium fluoroacetate or the glycolytic inhibitor, 2-deoxy-D-glucose, you get inhibition of Th1 cell activation. Okay. Now, while 2-deoxy-glucose was more potent at lower doses, both those inhibitors, including the sodium fluoroacetate, now what that, what that compound does is inhibit citrate synthase, it impairs the interferon gamma transcription, as well as T-cell proliferation, in a dose-dependent manner. What does that suggest? It suggests the activity of the TCA cycle enzymes are required for optimal Th1 cell initial activation. So the results demonstrate that unlike impairing glycolysis with 2-deoxyglucose or the TCA cycle, with the sodium fluoroacetate, which results in a block of both proliferation and function. The role of the electron transport chain supporting each of those processes is going to be variably distributed pathophenotypically. Okay. So, indeed, the inhibition of complex two failed to impair proliferation. Remember that cells will still be able to divide. Now, why is that significant? Because remember, that was all related to the fact that you're making acetyl-CoA in the cytoplasm because you have an active ATP citrate lyase. That means citrate's leaving the mitochondrion and generating lipid in the cytosol. Fatty acids via fatty acid synthase using the acetylcholine for that, and the cholesterologenesis as well. Now, why do you need fatty acids and cholesterologenesis? 
because you're going to go through a mitotic division. What do you need then? Two things, most importantly, need more membrane lipid and you need DNA. And remember the slowing of the glycolytic pathway via that pyruvate kinase M2 was going to allow you to build up intermediates in glycolysis to flood them into the axiate pentosphosphate shunt to generate NADPH for reductive biosynthesis that would include fatty acids and cholesterol, by the way, but also ribose 5-phosphate and the reducing equivalents of NADPH to drive nucleotide biosynthesis, purity and primity. So there it gives you nascent DNA synthesis for the replication of um, the genome, both uh, uh, presumably the mitochondrial genome as well as the um, nuclear genome. But of course, you can get mitochondria via fission, right? But then, of course, the lipid to make the new membrane. Okay. So th hopefully that kind of puts the whole thing together. So inhibition of complex two impairs proliferation. Excuse me, it fails to impair proliferation. But blocking complex one, that's the NADH oxidation, and three, that's the coenzyme Q pathway, results in it does result in a decrease in the number of dividing cells. Now, oligomyosin treatment, now that kills complex 5 ATP synthase, as you recall, displays a modest but still significant effect. And that suggests many possibilities including the role for ATP in mitosis, but also for the potential for mitochondrial apoptosis and associated reactive oxygen-mediated membrane integrity corruption and the potential for protein nucleic acid and lipid oxidation. Now, in a very significant turn, viability of the cells was not affected upon acute inhibition of some of the electron transport chain complexes. And consistent with that observation, day two treatment with rotenone or antimyosin, these are cells in culture in them, or antimyosin A results in cell cycle arrest right at that G2M phase. Whereas treatment with that, that dimethylmalonate or oligomyosin had no effect on cell cycle status. Now, that DMM, remember, the dimethylmalonate, what is that doing? Excuse me, dimethylmalic acid. What is that doing? It's inhibiting succinate dehydrogenase. Right. right. Okay. So similar to the Th1 cultured cells, Cells cultured in Th2 or Th17 conditions display defects in proliferation and an altered cell cycle when treated with rotenone. Now, again, that suggests complex one, that's NADH oxidation, right? Supports cell division regardless of the cytokine environment. So that also makes good biochemical sense. Because if you get no NADH oxidation at all, you're not going to be able to drive any kind of electron transport. You're not going to be able to replenish uh, the NAD. So you're not going to be able to run any dehydrogenases, either cytosolically or mitochondrially. So complex one tanking is, is not going to allow for proliferation.
So these inhibitor studies reinforce all the observations about ATP citrate lyase, once again, being absolutely essential for T-cell proliferation. And again, why? Because cell division requires lipogenesis for new membrane for the new cell. Okay? So now you got the, now you got the picture, I think, well, uh, I think I did a good synthesis to this level. So let me, let me add a little more. Thus, I'm saying TCA cycle blockage in early T cell metabolism is going to be controlled by amino acids flooding in that later components of the TCA cycle coming after alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, at, right, at the, right at the level of that junction with succinyl-CoA, okay? And by beta-oxidation of fatty acids, because that's going to generate NDH and FADH2. Now, that switches in the T-cell to lipogenesis during T-cell proliferation. So see, you're controlling either the anabolic pathway in the T-cell, where you need a lot of ATP, and you have to regulate that temporally. That's why these are all events. You have to regulate temporally so that you can then switch to lipogenesis to be able to go through mitosis at a cell division. Okay. Okay. So that, that makes perfect biochemical um, reasoned uh, analysis. So the switches to lipogenesis during T cell proliferation when glycolysis and transamination reactions, remember it's going to take the amino acids and running them into the TCA cycle, are feeding the TCA for ATP synthesis, while pyruvate kinase M2 slows down glycolysis, supporting oxidative pentose phosphate shunt for nucleotide biosynthesis. Okay. So the activation of T cells to proliferate and develop into armed effector cells, highly regulated process, relies on the balance of multiple signals. So you got T cell receptor ligation, which triggers tyrosine kinase signaling and co-stimulatory signals like CD28. They amplify all of those signals and engage significant serine and threonine kinase cascades, such as AKT and mTOR. And that leads to full T cell activation and proliferation. The metabolic and nutrient sensing pathways also play a very critical role in T cell fate, as we've just now been describing. Effector phase T cells perform aerobic glycolysis, glycolysis. Now that's a metabolic state also adopted by what other kind of cells? By rapidly dividing cancer cells, in which despite the presence of molecular oxygen, glucose is essentially fermented to lactic acid rather than oxidized in the mitochondria. Okay. Hello, Warburg effect. Glycolysis rapidly keeps up, therefore, with ATP demands in glucose rich conditions. 
It regenerates NAD, preserves the biosynthetic nature of the mitochondria to generate material to support proliferation. However, aerobic glycolysis likely not only supports cellular function bioenergetically, but what else does it do? It interfaces with the acquisition of effector function through differentiation and ultimately the support of cytokine and chemokine synthesis. So now I think we're, that was my entire synthesis. Okay. Hopefully um, we're, we're at a point now in the lecture where you're at a, you're, you're focused on where we were on the last two lectures. And now I'm going to move on. Okay. So that was my, my, my summation and then synthesis of the material. Those last three or four minutes were all the synthesis where, every, where I put everything together at multiple levels of valency. Okay. All right. So let's move on. All right. Remember that there are distinct roles for complex one and complex two in TH cell proliferation and function. And you get that understanding because the ATP citrate lyase inhibitor that they used, it's called BMS-303141, also significantly decreases interferon gamma production. So all about cell division necessary. If you inhibit HP citrate lyase, you're not going to get acetyl-CoA, or for that matter, oxalacetic acid, in the cytoplasm. Okay, but you're also not going to be able to generate ultimately enough energy to drive the fresh nation transcription of pro-inflammation, which includes interferon gamma as one of the initial cytokines. However, the effect, this is all a temporary, that's why everything's about an event. Understand why I always say that in biochemistry. The effect of the inhibition of complex one, or all the way at the end, complex five as the ATP synthase, with rotenone or oligomycin, respectively, recall, was not significant on interferon gamma production. Now, in contrast, comparing, comp no, excuse me, not comparing, impairing complex two. And now that's going to be the one associated with cyclic dehydrogenase. Right? Impairing complex two activity with a dimethylmalonate or complex three activity, and there the inhibitor is antimyosin A, did significantly reduce interferon gamma production. Below that, even observed when you use the ATP citrate lyase inhibitor. What does that suggest to me as a biochemist? suggests that the TCA cycle supports TH1 function by both enabling cytosolic acetyl-CoA production, which you know is going to lead to lipogenesis, and by fueling a succinate dehydrogenase-driven electron transport chain. Okay? So that's where you can feed in electrons 
and you can also feed in carbon at the same time. Now, the role for the electron transport chain was specific to the TH, as the T helper cell, cytokine culture conditions to which these cells were being exposed during activation. But unlike Th1 cells, inhibiting electron transport chain had a minimal impact on Th2 effector function, with complex 1 and 3 inhibition resulting in slight but significant increase in interleukin-4, which is a reporter for the Th2 activity. Whereas now TH17 cells, third type of lymphocyte, uh, actually the fourth total that we've covered this morning, this afternoon, excuse me, displayed sensitivity to both complex one and two inhibition. So what does that say? It's, the data basically says the electron transport chain has a TH cell program specific role in regulating effector function. That means all the different T upper cell classes, the different canonical signature cytokines for each of those, TH, T helper cells, T effector cells, and then the overall regulation of cell division post-activation right, for the proliferation of the um, T helper cells. Now, remember where succinate dehydrogenase is, citric acid cycle. Call citric acid cycle starts off with citrate synthase, that's OAA and acetyl-CoA. If it runs through the cycle, citrate is converted uh, to cis-aconitate first, then via aconitase to isocitrate, then you start the dehydrogenases. Isocitrate dehydrogenase making NADH, making intermediate oxalosuccinate, and then ultimately after decarboxylation, alpha-ketoglutarate. Alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, then uh, introducing coenzyme A, also reducing NAD, and again decarboxylating, makes succinyl-CoA. Then succinyl-CoA is converted via succinyl-CoA synthetase. That's going to be a synthesis of GTP, that's why it's called a synthetase. But also release coenzyme A. The thioester helps drive that reaction, as you can well understand. The thioester uh, free energy is what drives GDP plus PI conversion to GDP. And the other product, of course, is succinic acid. Then you get succinate dehydrogenase. Now, remember, that's only at the level of uh, oxidative efficiency where you can drive FAD reduction, not NAD. So succinate dehydrogenase makes FADH2 from FAD and fumarate then fumarate via fumarase to malate, and then there's one last dehydrogenase, that's the MDH, malate dehydrogenase. And what's the product of that? NADH and oxalacetic acid, which is ready for another condensation with incoming acetyl-CoA to make citrate, okay? So I'm reminding you of that because it's essential for the following. Boy, I better check my time. Yeah, you know, I'm going to stop there. I've got about almost two minutes, but I'm really, I don't want to, I don't want to cut myself off like I did last time because I want to finish this discussion here. Um, and 
and the only way I can get that done really is talk a little bit about um, the single stranded guided RNA, which is all part of the CRISPR technique, because I want to get into how they used CRISPR in this study uh, on TH1 differentiation and function. And it's going to take me a couple of minutes just to do that. And so I will leave all the really interesting intermediate metabolic uh, discussions after that TCA cycle, that brief TCA cycle, a reminder, I'll call it. And then we'll get into finishing off the um, purposes of this um, primary research paper. And ultimately, as promised, because this is about immunoepigenetics, I'm going to tell you about the epigenetic control, which is still coming. We've talked about it already in terms of that whole super enhancer. But we're going to come back to it in a different location and via a different molecular mechanism. Okay. So 22, February, 2023, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Same bye for now.